open by sharing a couple of quotes from the founder of our tradition, John Wesley. Now, it has everything to do with the message last week and this week. And I hope you'll see that there's a connection. I uh, want to inform you that while I appreciate people saying, you know, well, I, I mean, I don't follow John Wesley, I follow Jesus Christ. And I appreciate people saying, you know, I'm a Christian, not a Methodist. And so all of that is true in me too. But I do believe as one who came to this Methodist tradition on purpose, that there's a lot to learn from the founder and his brother and those who followed and that it is about living the Christian life. And I think when you hear these quotes, you'll understand what I mean, because as we move forward into the future of this church and its connection to the denomination, it'll be important to remember who we are in this tradition, and that is directly tied to who we are in Christ in this case. So listen to what John Wesley says about Methodists. He says, a Methodist is one who has the love of God shed abroad in his heart by the Holy Spirit given unto him. One who loves the Lord his God with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his mind and with all his strength. God is the joy of his heart and the desire of his soul which is constantly crying out, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My God and my all, thou art the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So this is what he says is the character of a Methodist. Well, I think we could agree that that's the character of a Christian. And that's the point. He also said this, in a Christian believer, love sits upon the throne which is erected in the inmost soul, namely love of God and man, which fills the whole heart and reigns without a rival. In a circle near the throne are all holy tempers, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, fidelity, temperance, and if any other were comprised in the mind which is that of Christ Jesus, in an exterior circle are all the works of mercy, whether to the souls or bodies of men. By these we exercise all holy tempers. By these we continually improve upon them, so that all these are real means of grace, although this is not commonly adverted to. Next to these are those that are usually termed works of piety, reading and hearing the word, public, family, private prayer, receiving the Lord's Supper, fasting or abstinence. Lastly, that his followers may be may the form, let me start over, please. Lastly, that his followers may the more effectively provoke one another to love holy tempers and good works. Our blessed Lord has united them together in one body, the church, dispersed all over the earth, a little emblem of which of the church universal we have in every particular Christian congregation. And so you see what Wesley is describing is what I believe we are, what I believe we are striving for in this church. We are to be a little expression of the universal church of Jesus Christ in the world. We are disciples of Jesus Christ who are, through our discipleship, changing the world for the better. 
John Wesley was an Anglican priest and he saw that it was a dreadfully messed up religion that he was part of. And it's often the case with religions. They become institutions and in my opinion, once their institutional uh, buildings begin to grow ivy up the sides, you can pretty well bet that they've probably died inside. And so what we have in this case was a man who simply wanted to reform the traditions of his fathers and therefore of his family and, and community, and what he ended up being was a rebel, someone who was rebelling against the status quo. And so he didn't get to see the reformation that he eventually caused, but he did see a movement that emerged as a result of what he did. And what was the movement? Christianity. He simply called uh, organized religion built around church buildings and church structures and hierarchies back to faith in Jesus Christ, back to discipleship, back to those things that I just shared with you. And it took. So he didn't change the Church of England, but he changed England. So much so that historians credit him with preventing the same disaster that occurred in France around the same time in the French Revolution because of his zeal and because of the Christian revival that emerged in the British Commonwealth as a result of his evangelism. And what did he teach? The basics of Christianity. And what are we all about here at Shiloh? Anyone want to guess? The basics of Christianity. That's what we're here for. We are here to love God that much. And the message from last week and the message this week is really two sides of the same coin. We are, if not entirely devoted to Christ, then entirely devoted to something. There isn't really a uh, sort of what Wesley would call almost Christian. You either are or you aren't. That's what Wesley would say. Uh, I heard somebody in my house making that old joke about being a little bit pregnant the other day. <laughs> like, like you, how can you be that? You can't. It's all or nothing. And that's what it really means to be a Christian. And yet so many Christians live in this sort of almost Christian realm where they are entirely devoted to their comfort and to their ease and not really all that devoted to obedience to Christ. And today's scripture reading is going to draw us into probably the best example of a Christian you're ever going to see this lady that I like to call the first Christian. So now we'll read that passage from John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And, uh, you know, I had you get it out and pull it up, but I failed to do that. So let me just ever so quickly pull that up here. And you will know the story when you hear it, especially if you've been watching The Chosen. Uh, Hey, I just found out this week something that I'm very excited about. Did you know that season one of The Chosen is on Amazon Prime now? That's huge. That is huge. You will, as an evangelist, that is someone who wants to share the good news of Jesus Christ because you just can't help it, you will be able to say to your friends, hey, that Jesus, that one you saw on Amazon Prime, that's the guy that we like to talk about where I go to church. You know, you can do that now. Because you know what people do with streaming services, right? I know this because I am one. We flip, 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 and then go, ooh, that looks interesting, and we watch it. Or, boy, I've heard a lot about this show. I'll check it out. 
That's how I ended up watching Squid Game. Ugh, bad, don't watch. <laughs> but that's also how you could end up watching The Chosen. So, eh. Opportunity knocks. Take advantage of it. Tell people about Jesus and tell them where they can learn more about him. Now, the story of the wedding at Cana, John chapter 2 at verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples when the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine and did not know there, where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when, you pe and when people have drunk plenty, uh, then the poor wine but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So this story, to us Westerners, is a little bit hard to take at first because we first thought that crossed your mind, all right? How many of you, you hear this story, and the first thought that crosses your mind is, if my kid said to his mother, woman, how would that go over? All right, all you moms out there, how do you think it would go over if your kid addressed you that way? Look, I'm almost 60, and my mom, 80-something, and she wouldn't take it very well if I said, woman... But that's our Western ears. In the same way, we are tempted to think that she's just playing the part of the Jewish mother when she says, just ignores him and says, do whatever he says and walks away. As though she's saying, I don't really care whether you think it's time or not. Do as you're told, kid. That's the way it reads to our Western eyes. Let me set the stage a little bit for you and see if I can open some insight for you because I really, really admire Mary. I don't worship her, but I admire her a lot. She is the first Christian. And here's what's going on. In these celebrations, which are basically community celebrations, you have to think about small towns and villages as being a lot like this congregation. In fact, this congregation, when we're all here at once, would constitute a typical village in those days, like Cana. And, you know, even like church, there are people who are related, even if they're not from that town, they're from nearby communities through marriage and so forth. They're still related. And so everybody knows everybody. And one's reputation is tied to how well this celebration goes off. The bridegroom especially is in deep trouble if something about this celebration isn't carefully thought out and carefully planned. And so what we have in this case is some kind of an oversight or error that has led to 
this, this uh, embarrassment. But it's way more than an embarrassment. I mean, this is your reputation. This is something you probably are never going to totally live down. When you're trying to trade with other people in the community, when you're trying to do work for people, this is on your, uh, this is on your Facebook page and it never goes away. You know, this is on your resume. You didn't plan your own wedding very well. Why should I think you could do this project for me well? That, there's a lot at stake here. And Mary recognized that. Mary recognized the pain and embarrassment and shame that would come. And so she went to her son and she said, you see what's going on. You should do something about it. Well, here's where my expensive education comes in handy. You got to look back at the language that would have been used in the time and recognize that we don't have English equivalents a lot of times. What Jesus says to her when our English translation says woman is actually a term of respect. It's a public setting. She has spoken to him about a need and he is responding to her as a uh, uh, he might have been saying something like madam. You know, so it was meant to be with respect. It wasn't disrespect. So the first thing we have to do is throw out that Western interpretation of what we just read. He was not being a smart aleck. He was being very respectful of his mother. He wasn't even using a familiar nickname like mommy. He was saying, madam, it is not time for this. And she says, go and do whatever he says which is, again, poorly translated because what she's really saying is, it is time. It is time for you to begin your public ministry. It is time for you. And this is a declaration on her, her part, not as Jesus' mom, but as a Christian believer, the first Christian believer a follower of Jesus Christ. This is a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal. This is the mother of Jesus saying to him, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, Christ and Messiah, same word, that we've been waiting for, and it's time for you to start. This is, this is a, what Wesley would call a holy conversation between Mary and Jesus. And the outcome is straightforward because Jesus doesn't hesitate. He doesn't question her. You know, he doesn't say, oh, no, you didn't. You didn't just tell me to do that, did you? He says, okay, fill these jars then. It's, it's a deliberate indication that we are see, we're seeing a, a sort of uh, foreshadowing of the church. We're, we're seeing a foreshadowing of the church, a Christian believer working in the spirit with Christ to accomplish something. It is not so much Mary trying to save a friend or a friend of a friend or whatever the relationship is from embarrassment as much as it is to say, Jesus, it's time to show them who you are. It's time to show them. And the reason we can say that with confidence is because look at how that passage we read ended. Then his followers believed. Who orchestrated this moment that set things in motion? But Mother Mary. Mary said to Jesus, it's time. 
I don't know what that says about Mary, and I don't want to dwell on it. I don't think she is a co-redemptrix. I don't think she's in any way equal to him in authority. I just see how this, this family of faith of Christian believers is at work in this moment. A mother stops looking at her son as her little boy. Can you imagine that? Moms, think about this for a second. Dads, too. This is the kid whose diapers you changed. This is the kid that you nursed until they could eat solid food. This is the kid whose knees you washed and cleaned after they stumbled and fell. This is the kid that smarted off to you when you told him to go back and do it over again, but better this time. And this is the kid that all of this, and now this kid, you look at him and you say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Do whatever he says. Mary has, by her own expression, by her own way of living and being and speaking, demonstrated the most important aspect of being a Christian believer. The thing that we alluded to in the words of John Wesley a minute ago is this desire to be entirely devoted to him. To put it another way, Mary said, you are my king. You are the, you are the boss. Your, your work, your word, your will be done. Do whatever he says. She's not just telling it to the servants. She's saying, like me. She's saying, that's what his followers do. And I would say that that is what we mean when we say that our principal mission is to be disciples. That is, people who do whatever he says. And so when we say our mission here is to be disciples, seek disciples, and change the world, that's what we're driving at. By being the things we read about earlier, we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Our principal characteristic is love for him expressed in love for one another. It is his spirit guiding our words, our thoughts, and our deeds. It is his spirit that guides our acts of mercy and grace. It is not something we do in order to get what we want from him. See how this thing developed with Mary? She did not do something in order to get him. She didn't try to persuade him to fix their problem by turning the water into wine. It, none of it went down like that. She simply said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We're going to do whatever you say about this situation. So let's think for a minute. What in your life have you presented to the Lord as a predicament that you'd like him to fix and what answer are you expecting? And how would it be if you presented to him like Mary? Well, there's a predicament here. And it looks pretty bad, Jesus. But you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Whatever you say, that's how we're going to deal with this. Could anybody have guessed that he would have them fill not just any pots, but the pots of water that was used to ritually cleanse people of the filth of their 
walk across the desert or the dirty roads, but also to ritually cleanse them of sin. Isn't it amazing that he made that the wine that was better than the average wine? And so what we see then is Jesus taking command of the situation and doing something utterly and completely unexpected. Did Mary know that he was going to do that when she said, do whatever he says? We don't know. We have to assume that she didn't and that what she was expecting wasn't of any particular relevance to the situation. What happens when you pray about your predicaments? Do you go into them? those prayers with expectations? Do you go into it looking for a certain outcome and being disappointed with the Lord because you didn't get what you asked for? Or do you go into it like Mary and you say, you're the boss, we'll do whatever you say. So finally then, what we have to accept is that Mary's witness tells us that the most important part of being a Christian believer is obedience. And obedience is not just about doing what you're told, but being prepared to do what you're told. In other words, you obey not only in the moment of decision, but your, your whole frame of thought is built around obedience. You are like, well... Pardon this terrible reference, but it just popped into my head. My dog watches me intently many times, and it's almost freaky, you know, but it's because she wants to respond instantly to whatever I might desire. That's how utterly devoted my dog is to me. She wants to respond instantaneously to me, and so she watches watches me like a hawk. This is the obedience we're talking about. Watching the Lord and being prepared to do whatever he expects you to do immediately. That would make you the kind of Christian that John Wesley described as the character of a Christian Methodist. That would give you the kind of zeal that he described in the nature of the deep devotion that Methodists would show to Christ. Let us pray. Mighty God, thank you for your word. Burn it onto our hearts now and now change our nature. Help us to be in a constant state of expectancy, ready to do as you say for your glory and because it'll be best. And let our obedience translate into glory for your name. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.